And now, for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, but five, force five. Welcome, one and all. I'm your host, Jason Kleberg, and this is the Force 5 Podcast, which you probably already knew because you clicked a button to start listening. Today's guest is a film critic and podcaster who I've listened to for years, Greg Sursavasti, and we're going to be talking about our top five underrated films. This is kind of like a, a sequel to the top five films that critics did not get, which I recorded last year with Sam LaChow. Before we get to our list, before we get Greg here, I've got a ton of social media follow-up from last week and a few things that I've seen recently that I want to talk about. First up, social media had a lot of response to uh, Top 5 Horror Masks on Instagram. Mangria Fueled said, of course, it's Friday the 13th, Jason Voorhees, but Killer Clowns from Outer Space is a close second. Jassican94 says The Strangers, which I think was mentioned in our episode. A lot of input from Reddit this week as well. Ghostface from Scream, uh, The Killer in Haunt, says Pull Chicken Pot Pie. Craze K Chick 81 says Halloween 3. Bandersnatch says Fear Street had some really cool ones. I have not seen Fear Street yet, but it's on my short list. Rechan says Smiley. The movie is shit, but the mask is awesome. Situation Wolf said, Barbara Steele's mask in Black Sunday, the silver mask in Demons, the skull mask in Headless, and the fang face mask from Rocktober Blood. And I haven't seen Rocktober Blood or Black Sunday, so I'm going to have to check those out. The Dracula mask, Lucas Hoswar in Lady in White is a favorite of mine, even if not really a horror film by most standards. That comment was from Shreddy Orpheus. Finally, a Wex Plastic Man says, Cut from 2000, pretty forgettable Aussie Scream clone, but had a very cool mask for its killer. Thank you again for everybody that submitted answers through Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit. Let's talk about some of the things I have been watching in this past week. I saw the new Bob Ross documentary on Netflix. This one is called Happy Accidents, Betrayal, and Greed. This documentary is part Bob Ross retrospective, and the other part is his son Steve coming to terms with a few unethical business partners named the Kowalskis that have essentially controlled the Bob Ross moniker since really before his death. Now, the best parts of this documentary are the old clips of Bob Ross. I grew up with Bob Ross, and I remember sitting at my dad's house. Like, this is before... You, could, you had to go to the TV guide to look up when things were going to be on, or they had that guide channel that you would look at. And I remember going to the TV and just looking for Bob Ross stuff. I was never a good painter. I was an artist, but more like pen and pencil. I could never get into painting, and Bob Ross just made it look so easy. And I always had a good time watching him do his thing. So it was really cool to see those old clips of Mr. Ross. Now, the worst part of this are the legal proceedings and the Steve stuff. I guess I'm just not sure what Steve Ross was trying to accomplish by putting this film out. Now, the case has already happened, and he lost that case because, as shitty as this is, it's the way it is. His uncle signed the rights away a long time ago. I did not think this was a very entertaining documentary, but it was fun to see Bob Ross on TV again. It just didn't seem like there was very much meat to the story, and there's really nothing that we can do anyway these days, aside from not buying towels at Target if they've got Bob Ross's face plastered on them, I guess. The other thing I saw this week was a 1979 film called Malibu High. Kim wants to graduate from Malibu High with honors. Most kids do it by making grades. Kim does it by making appointments. What are you doing after school? If you're interested, I'll be at High Point. I'm not interested. High Point. I'll be there. She's studying with the best instructors at Malibu High. 
And if she can't learn enough from nine to three. You game for a little game? She takes her teachers on a field trip. Well, that's an offer hard to resist. Then don't. Malibu High. Malibu High is about a woman named Kim. She's flunking out of high school. Her boyfriend left her for a rich girl. During a night of reflection in which she and her best friend drink and smoke weed, she decides she's going to turn things around and graduate at the top of her class. Great goals, to be sure, but Kim does not plan on studying. Malibu High is a very weird, very dark film. From the cover alone, it looks like a standard late 70s, early 80s teenage high school comedy that could sit in the same lane as Screwballs or Fast Times at Ridgemont High. But it's pretty early on in the film when you realize this one is going in a completely different direction, as Kim rolls out of bed naked, lights a cigarette, and heads to the breakfast table to call her mom a stupid bitch. See, Kim wants to graduate at the top of her class, but she's not interested in studying to better those grades. No, she's going to bang her way to the top. To earn some cash, she becomes a hooker, working for a local pimp named Tony who looks like he was plucked from the catalog of Uncle Rico lookalikes, van and all. And guess what? The plan works. See, luckily for Kim, everyone that works at her school are scumbags, hot for underage women. She bangs her history teacher, her bio teacher, and then even gets the principal to her house so that she can try to seduce him. And then it turns into this hitman film where Kim starts working for another pimp who only caters to what he calls exclusive clients. The story is certainly unique, but never feels like it really heads anywhere meaningful. Kim's academic career is screwed up because she's a lazy student, and instead of actually trying to put in a semblance of work, she chooses the path of least resistance for both her grades and literally every penis in Malibu. As the protagonist of the story, and I put that in quotation marks, she's extremely unlikable. She's a petty, vengeful sloth with nary a redeeming quality. She mistreats her mother, who's a bit high-strung, but is also clearly still grieving after her husband's suicide two years earlier. No wonder he couldn't stand it here. You could have looked decent once in a while, instead of worrying about dirt and dust and greasy build-ups. Maybe then you wouldn't have driven Daddy away. And maybe Daddy wouldn't have had to kill himself because he couldn't get it up anymore! Now Kim's boyfriend, or ex-boyfriend, is a dick, but he's like 17 years old. Move on and get on with your life. It also never feels like there's a reason that Kim wants to finish the school year at the top of her class. Clearly she doesn't give a shit about school, and it doesn't seem like she cares about having a job, so why is this so important to her? The film is competently shot, but the acting is terrible. Standout scenes include some girl standing up in front of the class to explain part of an industrial revolution lesson that looks like she's never acted before and is reading off giant cue cards off screen. Valerie, can you tell us? Yes, the industrial revolution was the result of the British navigation laws under the reign of Elizabeth I of England. The navigation laws were enacted which stated that only British ships can enter British ports. The result was... And Kevin's acting when a woman is shot dead right in front of him and his level of concern barely rivals that of someone whose chips might be stale after they left the bag open sitting on the counter overnight. The dialogue often feels stilted and weird until Kim is heated. Ironically, that's when the acting feels the most real. The tone of the film also feels super funky, as some scenes like Kim trying to talk to her all-but-deaf principal are played like a, like a slapstick comedy and feel like they belong to another film altogether. I should also mention the odd musical choices, as it starts with a banging monkeys-style song and then has these nonsensical Pac-Man-like sounds when certain scenes transition. Be sure to listen for the insane placement of the People's Court theme song during the climax of the film. After watching Malibu High, I couldn't help but wonder who the audience for this film was. Obviously, it feels like some kind of grindhouse film, but the violence is all very tame. 
We never see bullet holes, and aside from cutting back to a guy with a gunshot wound, there's really not much blood at all. It's got nothing appealing for teens of the era either, as the high school hijinks are at a minimum, and the nudity, while plentiful, is about as unsexy as nudity in films gets north of rape scenes. Times have obviously changed, and I'm sure that the film is a lot less fun now. Watching a guy tell Kim that he's the only dirty old man she's going to have to worry about right now might have been endearing in the 70s, but it's going to make your skin crawl in 2021. As will the turn to prostitution, which is played off in the film as a very light and airy decision by our leading lady. On the bright side, at least we get to see some awesome late 70s fashion and decor, which is always a treat. Speaking of Malibu, the housing market is hot right now, and if you're in that area and you're looking for a new place to call home, there's only one person to call, and that's Stan Sitwell at Sitwell Enterprises. Stan and his team just opened two new developments, and it is officially open season on real estate in the Newport Beach, California area. If you're looking for a family-friendly slice of suburbia, check out their Sudden Valley development. These homes have all the amenities you need, are a short walk from the Newport Beach Pier and the world-famous Frozen Banana Stand, and are guaranteed to be Saddam Hussein free. If you're single and looking for something a little more fun and fancy free, knock on the door to Single City, a community only for hot singles ready to mingle. Give Sitwell Enterprises a call and tell them that the Force 5 podcast sent you for a free keychain with the purchase of any new Sitwell home. Check your lease, man. You're living in city. Welcome back to the Force 5 podcast. Uh, Greg, welcome back to the second time we're recording this because the first time I forgot to hit the record button. <laughs> I, w I was so actually embarrassed to actually ask you in the middle of a podcast because I saw zero, zero, zero on the dial over here. So I don't know how Zencaster works. So I'm glad I, I was actually kind of right about something. And did I just save the show tonight? tonight? In a way? This week is dedicated to Greg Sersavasti here uh, because we literally sat here and talked for like 25 minutes and nothing was recording. Uh, so thank you for speaking up. And if I uh, do something else here that uh, is that looks off, you just speak right up, Greg. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I will definitely. Everything looks really perfect on, on my end. The audio sounds great. Everything is cool. We are off and running. Everything's We're perfect. going. We're going. We have lines. I love it. And we were able to do a little bit of a podcast rehearsal. So that's <laughs> that's a nice thing. And by the way, listeners, I've as an interviewer, I've Jason, you're gonna love this. I don't know if you know um, <laughs> the director Sidney Lumet. I mean, he's a really I do, yeah. Yeah, he's an amazing filmmaker. Okay, I apologize for actually talking down to you and asking if you know who Sidney Lumet is. Okay, that's <laughs> my horror. You know, you know, like for listeners, Serpico, Dog Day Afternoon, all these kind of things. I actually talked to the cinematographer of Sidney Lumet. I mean, he worked on probably eight or ten Lumet films, and I was he was doing a, a a new movie of his. So we talked about that new movie new movie for for about ten minutes, but then before that, I had about fifteen to twenty minutes of great Hollywood history on working with Lumet, and I realized I had not recorded. Mm. So there there's fifteen minutes of Hollywood history regarding remembrances of Lumet, which I could have had in my audio library, which is. Never happened because I didn't press record. So do not feel bad. This has nothing compared to what I did with Sidney Lumet and it's DP. So, uh, in, in a way, that's even more special though, because you're the only one with that history. That's true. That's true. And, that, <laughs> and, and the good thing is that that DP probably hates me now. So that's it. <laughs> but, but here, everything's good. We're, we're perfect. We're going to talk about our top fives, you know, and do the intros. Everything's good. Yes. Uh, we, are, we are back to normal. I guess I should introduce you yet again, because just like you with uh, Sidney Lumet's DP, 
I'm the only one who's uh, learned about your film background on oh. this podcast. So let's give it to everybody else. Uh, Greg is a film critic, a professional film critic, as he himself will not attest to. But I'm going to no, say right, he's yes. a professional I'm, film critic. Right. Yes. <laughs> he's been in the business for Thank you. 30 plus years. In addition to his written work at his website, deepestdream.com, Greg co-hosts two amazing film podcasts, Find Your Film and Cinematics, which is where I discovered him. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the inspiration for your website, deepestdream.com? You know, honestly, I just wanted to start my own website because for years I was working in the audio space with Westwood One. And then I transitioned to do online reporting over at the site called Hollywood Outbreak. Then I just wanted to do my own little offshoot of that just a little bit of a blog. This was back in 2014. And to be honest, media has really changed since 2014. And look, the cool thing is now I'm going to be dedicating a lot more of my time to my website, but it's one of those things that I thought it was going to be a big 24-hour cycle news website, but it's really morphed into something else. So it's basically, I'm still trying to figure out what that site is, but I do a lot of movie interviews and movie reviews and podcasts. For my cinematics and find your film podcasts, they are housed on that deepest dream website. So that is that is my plug before we get into the, to the meat of the podcast, the most important stuff, which is cinema. Definitely go and listen to those podcasts. Check out the website to, to have access to all that stuff because uh, Greg's an amazing podcaster. And every time he podcasts, he hits the record button first, which is a key <laughs> for a good podcast. It's a very good key. Very good. No, you're, <laughs> look, you're learning on the fly. You're what? You just celebrated your... Your one-year anniversary on this podcast. Indeed. Indeed. And, and you know, I'm not going to tell you how many sub subscribers you have. I'm not going to divulge your statistics, but it's very, very, uh, very, you know, very impressive because in cinematics, you know, I'm going to and, and find your film. We have a total of six subscribers. So you, you beat <laughs> us by you beat us by a lot. So congratulations with your with the success of your podcast. So don't feel bad. I'd rather I'd rather miss pushing the record button a million times and and have the level of your subscribers because anything over six or seven is better. Well, let's double uh, Greg's subscriber count because I'm subscribed twice to your podcast, so that's a little concerning. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that is a bit. And, and then my my mom does both of mine. So and, you know you know Anderson and Bruce Perky and Eric Holmes they don't even subscribe to the podcast, so probably and neither do I. So this is a reverse plug. Listeners, just keep on supporting Jason's stuff and uh, forget <laughs> my stuff and just just listen to my top five and move on from there. Oh, so Cinematics is, is this uh, amazing podcast where you talk about the films that are coming out, the films that you've seen in the last year. I guess I'll switch up my question this time around. What's a film that you're really looking forward to um, in, in the coming months? Is there one that you're really just waiting to hit theaters? To be honest, I'm trying to think of a movie that I should be really excited about. I'm thinking there's a movie that I think that's coming out next week, directed by Paul Schrader, The Card Counter. I'm excited to see that because I love Paul Schrader's movies, yeah. but I'm not over the moon for it. I think the, the movie I'm really looking forward to, like everyone else, is Dune. That's the movie that I really want to see. I still haven't seen the David Lynch version. I haven't seen the miniseries version. I haven't read the book since I'm basically a functioning illiterate. So I, I don't, <laughs> because, you know, when you watch movies, there's who's, who has time to actually feed your mind with, with needless words, right? When you watch the, when you're a movie addict. So yeah, give me the movie version of it, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know my ABCs, but I know what, I know how to put, put uh, Blu-rays into my, my uh, PS, PS4 and also stream on my Fire Stick. So yeah, that's, the, I can do that at least. That's all we need. I am also need. very excited for Dune. I uh, cannot wait to see that one. In terms of favorite films of all time, 
if someone was to ask you, hey, give me your top couple movies of all time or top filmmakers of all time, what would your answer be? Well, I mean, for me, it's any... For, okay, so look, there, there's, only one, there's only one and that's Brian De Palma. And it's because since Brian De Palma is a student of Alfred Hitchcock and he tells everyone he steals a lot of his best ideas from Alfred Hitchcock, when I say Brian De Palma, Brian De Palma I include Alfred Hitchcock as a pick because they're basically like-minded filmmakers and what they both focus on is visually driven cinema. And that's it. I just like, I prefer movies that aren't just coverage shots or two shots and, or, or shot in a boring fashion. If a movie has a, some sort of visual panache to it, I'm already attracted to it because that, that to me is what cinema is all about. You know, Jason, you were talking about how you actually watch some TV shows, TV programs and whatnot. They always talk about how these TV series are, they're almost cinematic I, I, yeah, maybe a lot of, I'm sure a lot of them are cinematic, but there's nothing cinematic about having 10 episodes that you have to binge watch over three or four days that look like movies. They're just, they're just time, time wasters to, in my opinion. So for me, cinema is sitting in the theater for about two, maybe two and a half hours, like, like say a Dune and actually watching those images really compressed within that time. So, um, yeah, that's, that's it for me. It's, it's, it's all about the visuals. Very, very cool. Tonight's topic, we're talking five underrated films. We diverted a little bit because your original idea was five underrated De Palma films. Uh, so, yeah, thank you for giving us context as to uh, your favorite filmmaker, Brian De Palma. He shows up in one of the top five. Just a little bit of a spoiler here. He's going he's gonna to show up. So I ha- Oh, I ha- yeah. I had to pick one of them. I'm excited to hear which one that is. I almost picked a De Palma movie as well. I actually almost picked a Paul Schrader movie too. Oh, very cool. Do do you have honorable mentions towards the end of the program? Once and you're just yeah, about- yeah. Okay, very cool. Yeah. yeah, we'll talk about some of those that uh, narrowly missed our lists. Uh, but let's get to our list. You know what's gonna happen? Mm. You know what's happening here right now? How do you know what's gonna happen? I don't know. Top five underrated films. Greg, did you set any parameters for yourself when you were thinking about how a movie could be considered underrated? Well, like you said, I've been doing interviews for 30 years. I actually started as a film critic and interviewer for the, for my for UCLA. I worked for the UCLA Daily Bruin from, I think, 90 to 93. Okay. Oh, cool. So a lot of these movies, I would say about, no, well, four, four out of the five movies are movies that I covered as, not as a a college student at the Daily Boone, but as a reporter, a radio reporter, producer for Westwood One, and also as an online critic reporter for, um, you know, for Hollywood Outbreak and Deepest Dream and everything that I, and, and all, all the podcasts that I've covered. So yeah, this is sort of a, an interesting window. I was thinking of actually making it, oh, maybe I should pick a movie from the 40s since I hadn't, haven't done that, but I want to actually pick movies that I covered and that even to this day that... Yeah, I'm still flummoxed why, or still surprised why they don't get get as much love as they do as they should. That's awesome. Not only that you uh, that you have that personal experience to draw upon your list, but also that you use the word flummoxed, which doesn't get used enough. I think yeah. that's a great word. Thank you. I, I probably misused it, but I, I felt like flummox, so I felt like <laughs> saying F. I wanted an FL in this podcast, so I used it. There we go. There we go. The movies I chose had to be rotten on Rotten Tomatoes because I don't have the, the experience you do. So I had to go with these aggregate re- review scores that I look at these and I under I just don't understand why critics didn't like the movies on my list. 
Well, I, I guess I'll say one I kind of understand, but the other ones I, j- I just don't understand why they didn't like the movies on my list. Let's get into the list. My number five is 1993's Hard Target. In the city of New Orleans, in a darker side of Dixie, away from the music and the lights, there's a new game in town. You'll be provided with a guide, trackers, and the weapons of your choice. I need to file a missing person report. The competitors are deadly. We pride ourselves in hunting only combat veterans, men who have the necessary skills to make our hunts more interesting. And they always win. You want to find your father? Get somebody who knows the city to show you around. Now, the opposition is about to get one last chance. Kind of a name is Chance. My mama took one. So John Woo has made some of my favorite action films of all time from Hong Kong. The Killer, Hard Boiled. I love Face Off. I am Great movie. unabashed in my love for Face Off. I even love a movie that almost made my list. 2002's Wind Talkers with Nicolas Cage. I love that movie. I'm flummoxed as to why <laughs> Hard Target didn't get the love that his Hong Kong movies did. It was just not well received. It sits right now in Rotten Tomatoes at 46%. It's a story that we've seen so many times. The rich hunting the poor. It's just like you see in Surviving the Game or Most Dangerous Game. But this time, you add Jean-Claude Van Damme. And I think that's important. He is uh, He's going against these evil hunters. And it's like the tagline on the poster says, Don't hunt what you can't kill. It's got all these hallmarks of the John Woo films that I know and love. It's got the gratuitous violence, the gratuitous slow motion, the gratuitous doves, of course. I mean, it's just gratuitous (laughs) gratuity all over the place. Well, you're you're missing. You're missing out the whole. You you just buried the lead, Jason. You buried the whole lead. You know the lead one. The mullet? Well, the John Claude Van Damme mullet. No, that you're burying that you're burying it further. Where this is a cemetery, you're at the bottom. You're, You're you might be hitting the center of the earth now. Oh, boy. Excavate me. Yeah, the lead is Wilford Brimley on a horse. Oh, in slow motion. No less. <laughs> That's, it's a classic. You have to. He's, he's the man. He's the man in this movie. What's your connection to Hard Target? I'd love to know. Okay. Here's, it's, it's a pretty interesting connection. And yeah, I don't really, I, I, maybe I've told the story maybe once or twice, maybe during the cinematics years early on. But yeah. I actually attended that press junket. That press junket was held in Atlanta, Georgia, and like you said, 1993. I believe I just graduated from from UCLA, so I I thought to myself, man, I'm in a nice what, five star hotel. I have a per diem <laughs> of a uh, of two hundred fifty dollars for the weekend, hundred twenty five dollars a night. Back in the day when they used to respect radio people, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they'd give you per diems, and you could actually use a hundred twenty five a night to eat food, have room service. I was pretty much. Oh, at least for for a moment, I was I was really happy, and that evening when I touched down into to Atlanta, I think it was, specifically it was a hotel in Buckhead. I think that's a, a city. Really loved the room. Had to go to a, a shuttle to the to the local theater to watch Hard tar- Target. I my my buddy, my college buddy from actually lived in Atlanta. He met me at the mall. We went to the theater, Hard Target. I'm sitting close to the back. And throughout the entire movie, because I was a, probably by then I was a really conceited, you know, want a hole. <laughs> I throughout Hard Target, I was basically bashing the movie, whispering to my friend, making cracks, 
throughout the entire movie. And lo and behold, towards the end of the movie, John Woo was sitting right behind me. And I had oh, to interview man. him. Yeah, I had to interview John Woo the next day. So that is my <laughs> John Woo story for Hard Target. I was really embarrassed. You know, we, we were talking about things that you learn along the podcasting and interviewing space, right? Uh, like always press record, which, we, you know, it's a normal <laughs> thing to do. I've done, I, I still do that on occasion when I, when I don't do that. But I also learned that day never to talk any kind of crap about a movie when you're in the theater because you never know who's behind you. How did the interview go? Did he remember it was you? I remember it. I was so embarrassed that I let all the other journalists ask questions. <laughs> I was too scared to ask John Wu a question. Nice guy, by the way. But I, I, I'm sure over the years I've interviewed him. Maybe I interviewed him. Did he do Broken Arrow? But I mean, I, I interviewed him for a bunch of other movies. Maybe Wind Talkers, yeah. I interviewed him. So yeah, he was a nice guy. Nice guy. But I felt really bad. And I felt like a total, you know, just jerk by doing that. But that's that's a true story. Wow. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, now, the, the version that you saw and that most American audiences saw was the theatrical cut, which was really butchered from the original version. So the director's cut is actually coming out in December in 4K. Wait, 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 wait. You, have you seen the director's cut or is this the first time they're re releasing the director's cut? I have seen the director's cut. Um, and I'll, yeah, so in short, the director's cut has been around for a very long time but only in work print form. Mm. And now it's getting released officially in 4K. So I'm wondering if the response will be different. Back when, oh man, it must have been like the year 99 or 2000. This is when people still did tape trading. I don't know if you were mm. ever a, um, mm. like ever into that scene, but you go on websites and you could tape trade essentially. And somebody had a work print of hard target with all the, uh, with way more violence, way more story. And I picked up that work print and I had it on VHS for a long time. And I'm so excited this is coming out in officially in December. So that work print, that director's cut, way better film than Hard Target. The word, the theatrical. Yeah, it's, it's way better than the theatrical release. The one that I saw, like it was so rough that it had the time code and timestamps still at the bottom. It was definitely rough. And I don't know how they got it. But uh, yeah, that's the only version I've seen of it. So I'm psyched to, to see it again. Okay, our target that, and that's good. It's a good timing because you know you're gonna pick it up. I'll, I'll definitely probably pick it up too. This time, I'll, indeed, I'll be, I'll be kinder to John Woo when I when I watch it. <laughs> Just make sure when you turn around in your house, he's not sitting behind you. <laughs> right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Okay, number five on my list. I, I decided to actually go on Rotten Tomatoes and to see if ho hopefully it doesn't. Well, here's here's the thing on the Tomato Meter by critics, it received a seventy one percent score. But I did cover this, and I think when I when I covered it, I thought it was going to be a big hit. On the flip side of that, the audience score for Rotten Tomatoes for this movie called Restoration is only 59%. In a time of kings, in a world of commoners, an ordinary physician came to court to fulfill a royal favor. Do you know why I've summoned you here? Celia Clements is to be married. I understood she was your mistress. And then you understood right, Meredith. For her husband, I need a man who is far too enamored of women in general to make the mistake of loving one in particular. You are to be a paper bridegroom. Now, he's forsaken his one true calling. You have a gift for understanding sickness. The king has made other plans for me. For a life of folly. 
Uh. It was released in 1995, running at an hour and 58 minutes. Have you ever heard of Restoration? I've heard of it. This is a Robert Downey Jr. movie, right? Yes, yes, yes. And yeah, he, I haven't seen it, but I've heard of it. What's directed by Michael Hoffman. Michael Hoffman did One Fine Day. What else has he done? He did this movie called Game Six. He's an interesting filmmaker. Oh, he, oh well, let's see. What else? He did the um, The Emperor's Club and Soap Dish. These are some of the movies he's directed. He's a director I really enjoy. Restoration was my favorite of his. Okay. And when it came out, it bombed. It's one of those Miramax. It was a Miramax film. Mm. I, I'm looking here right now, 3.5 million gross. And if you actually watch the trailer to Restoration, you'll see it's a 17th century, 17th century set epic starring Robert Downey Jr. as a physician. His name is Robert Merrivel. And Merrivel is a physician who is, he just has a gift for medicine and, and helping people and curing people. And he decides to actually, he becomes a confidant of, of the king. And the king is played by Sam Neill. Ultimately, by becoming a confidant, he actually goes from being his passion as, as a physician becomes his passion for money and women and living a rich lifestyle. But then things turn around and ultimately Merivelle must face and must face his actual calling, which is to, to actually become a physician, not just for the rich, but hopefully a physician for all mankind. So that is so restoration is not just about the period of time in the 17th century. Restoration is sort of a you know it's based on a novel, but it, it rest, the word restoration is not just indicative of, of the time. It's the restoration of the doctor's spirit and humanity. And so it's a very great character arc. And another tie-in for this was I recently interviewed, and I actually haven't even released this interview on my on. Deepest Dream or my, my YouTube channel, I interviewed Michael Hoffman because his movie Game 6 just came out on VOD a couple of weeks ago. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. And the star, that movie stars Michael Keaton and, and again, Robert Downey Jr. is in that. But then I, I mentioned to him that I one of my favorite films of his was Restoration and I felt that was underrated. And he, instead of just giving the stock, oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I really love that movie. Wish it got more of a do. That, that kind of stock answer that a director should give. He just, he was honest. He said, well, you know, he basically said in, in uh, no less words that he sort of missed the mark on that movie. He felt that he he concentrated a little bit more on the visuals and the epic nature of it because, it, you know, the movie also stars Polly Walker and Hugh Grant and Meg Ryan is in it. She she plays a woman who, uh, impoverished maiden who, who who eventually strikes the fancy of Merivelle. And I mean, back in 93, you know, she was doing all those like When Harry Met Sally movies. So mm-hmm. think of it then, when the first time you see Met friggin sally in this period epic you're thinking this is not <laughs> meg Ryan can't act her way out of a shoebox you're probably thinking she should just stick to the rom-coms but now years later 27 28 years later i look at her performance which i didn't like back in the day i actually liked it, it, it she was pretty good in it and i felt bad back l- thinking of her that way in 93 now in 2021 things are better and this movie i i feel nobody knows this like you at least you knew it's robert downey jr but i feel that this movie is highly underrated. It's very, pretty evocative. It has its flaws, but it's an epic look at a person's fall from grace and attempts to come back and become the man he sh- he is supposed to be. But then Hoffman said that the little scoop of, that I haven't released yet is Hoffman said he he had an initial three to three and a half hour cut of restoration that has oh, never wow. been released. And I should have followed up and asked him 
and pleaded with him to release it because, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. So yeah, that's my number five pick. I actually looked on Amazon for, I don't think it's released on Blu-ray, it's released on DVD, but then you look at the reviews on Amazon and it's four and a half stars with a couple of hundred reviews. So I think a lot of people, even though this movie's really ignored, you know, since it was, since it's 95 release, the people who have come across it, a lot of them really enjoy restoration. That's a fantastic pick and one that I need to seek out. I wonder if that is even on disc because a lot of the Miramax films were pulled from circulation, even if it was on Blu-ray before. You know, it's weird as I picked up a DVD for about four or five dollars at my local DVD store, but they have a lot of DVDs there, too. But it's it you can probably get it on Amazon. But again, like, you know, there's probably not a lot of copies floating around there for restoration. All right. One added to my list. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, you know, no Wilford, no Wilford Brimley on a horse, but you know, you you, you take what you can get. <laughs> well, if maybe he's in the director's cut, maybe they just uh, it was an extra hour and a half of Wilford Brimley riding around on a horse. That'd be so. Odd. I can't wait to see that cut. <laughs> by the way, when it comes out later this year. My number four is one that I just recently reviewed on this podcast. It was a new viewing for me, and I just still cannot understand why it doesn't get more love. I looked on Rotten Tomatoes. This one doesn't even have a score which means they couldn't even grab enough reviews to give it a score. And the audience score is only 35%, which is totally confusing to me. It's from 1985. It's called Walking the Edge. I did like that, baby. I'm totally crazy. Walking the Edge in a violent city. Ah! Run, Dad, run! torn apart a woman needs to settle the score if he was pushing drugs to young kids maybe he deserved it danny was my baby my son he was an easygoing man a nice guy with unfulfilled dreams who's been pushed too far you pick up and deliver otherwise keep your friggin mouth shut is that clear my friends don't talk to me that way I think I'm tired of getting pushed around. A man and a woman, two strangers brought together by chance, held together by fate. Whoa. You never heard of it? No. Zero. Yeah. Stumped the band. Yeah. Yeah. You stopped me on this one. I'm happy to bring you into the fold of Walking the Edge fans, which I think you will be if you do watch this movie. And it just got a fantastic Blu-ray release as well. Okay. Walking the Edge stars Robert Forster who's awesome. I love Robert Forster. He plays this cab driver who, as a side gig, his boss also makes him collect debts. So he's driving around the city in Los Angeles, collecting debts, taking fares. And one day he takes a fare for this woman who says, I need you to take me to this auto body shop. And he drives her to this auto body shop. She gets out and starts shooting the people at the auto body shop. In a, in a panic, they start shooting back at her. So she jumps back in the cab and they take off in the cab. And now the people that she was shooting at have targeted both of them. So these goons are hunting him down throughout the city. And he's trying to tie up all these ends. Like he doesn't have a lot of money, so he doesn't really have anywhere to hide. And it's just this kind of cat and mouse game throughout the city. But the thing that makes Walking the Edge so good is the dialogue. <laughs> Everything in this film feels so real and feels so just pitch perfect for this 80s Los Angeles setting. There are these one-liners back and forth. It's very quick dialogue. And when I wrote my review of it, it was it felt reminiscent of Quentin Tarantino. 
I have no doubt that he's seen this movie because a lot of it just mirrors some of the scenes in his films. Kurt Allen wrote the screenplay. Okay. And I've never seen another Kurt Allen movie, so I need to dig up more of his stuff to see if it's all like this or or if the credit is, should be more on the actors that were ad-libbing. Uh, but wow, it is it, it blew me away when I saw this. It also has this character named Tony, who is Robert Forster's best friend in the movie. And if I ever do top five best friends... This dude, Tony, is going to make the list. Every he, he has a very short amount of screen time, but every time he's on screen, he's giving Forster's character only the best advice. And when he's pushed to, to basically give in his friend, he never budges. He is so good as this, uh, as this side character. And then the dynamics between the, the three villains is really interesting as well because they seem to hate each other. But when there's nefarious activity going on, they all come together as this group, as this team. And I thought that was fun, too. Like when you see them and they're not committing crimes, they just hate each other. And they're just like like they they want to fight each other. They want to trash each other. But when there's a task at hand, they are a united front. It's also got a really great look at 80s Los Angeles, which I know you will definitely appreciate being in Los Angeles. The disc was put out by Fun City Editions. And it mm. looks just fantastic. They're a newer boutique Blu-ray label, but they are doing great work. They put out Alphabet City as their first one. Right, and yeah. uh, this was one of their newest ones. And it is just so good. And they also got two full-length audio commentaries from people involved with the movie. So I still need to, to spin those and learn more about it. But wow, Walking the Edge. More people need to see this. I think it's underrated. So you actually, did you see the movie before you got the disc or it was just, yeah, just a complete discovery? Like, wow, I had no idea. This was a complete discovery. So I, I had been at the time I had been on a Forster kick and I was watching stuff like Alligator and um, Vigilante mm. and then Fun City put this out and I was like, I gotta, I gotta check this out. I've never heard of it. I didn't have high expectations going in, but it blew me away. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. Okay. Walking the edge. I, I've got to check that out. Nancy yep, Kwan. Walking the Edge, yeah. 1985. Yeah. yeah, she was great in it too. There's a, there's a shoehorned love story in it that's the only thing I didn't really like about, about the movie, but everything else, just pitch perfect. Okay, so Walking the Edge. And, you know, you're not going to go wrong with Robert Forster. You know, exactly. Way. By the way, just a quick mention on Robert Forster. Have you, so you, you were on a Forster kick. You've seen probably a lot of his movies or most of I've his movies? I've seen a lot of movies, but I wouldn't say that I've seen enough. Did you see the movie he did recently, maybe a couple years back, with Hilary Swank? It's a it's a family drama, and it's really well done. Done. You know, when whenever I see something like family drama, I I, I just go to myself, okay, I don't want to see the Waltons all over again. But yes, <laughs> this family drama is called What They Had. It was released in 2018 by Bleecker Street, and you hmm. know I can go hot and cold on Hilary Swank sometimes, but she is perfect in this movie. Co-stars Michael Shannon. And this is another movie that, and it also co-stars Blythe Danner, obviously, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's mom, and she's excellent in this movie. And I believe, if I recall, they, they're having to deal with Bl Blythe Danner's character. She's under, she's having dementia, I believe. And basically, this family drama is really well acted. And you said you were on a Forster kick. Yeah, yeah, that you, you're, you're always going to be in, on a Forster kick anyway. So if you want to see a really good Forster film, go check out what they had. Very 
a wonderful performance by everyone, including Forster. You you had me at Michael Shannon. If you oh. didn't have me at Robert Forster in the first place, yeah. Oh, very very cool. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it, it over. You know, if you're not a fan of the, that genre, you're gonna be you're a fan of the actors. So that's gonna upscale the whole experience for you. So my number four is look. I'm looking on Rotten Tomatoes. Tomato meter fifty five percent. Audience score forty nine percent. This movie when it came out, I thought, hey. People can forgive, or even if they don't forgive, they can separate the art and reality. Mel Gibson, right? You can, you, you, whatever your thoughts on the guy, he's a, he's a bona fide movie star. Okay, so sure. I'll watch I'll watch any movie he's in, even if it's really bad. I just want to see how how well he does in it, or how much he really improves whatever direct he's putting out, or whatever. And sometimes a lot of his movies sometimes are probably underrated because of the reputation he's accrued over the years for his comments and his actions so that sure. leads me to number four to released in 2010 the crime mystery thriller edge of darkness there are still a lot of unanswered questions but it appears detective thomas craven was the intended target this is someone armed and dangerous what do you think i am how's he dealing with it personally <laughs> Hey, Emma, Craven's phone. Hello. Mr. Craven, we have things to talk about. Like your name and what you're doing here? Like who shot your daughter. I want to know what my daughter did here. What she did was classified. Emma Charlotte Craven was flagged as a possible threat to the United States of America. My daughter was not the type. He's a Boston homicide detective, so seeing Mel Gibson sport an accent or try to is cool it's pretty funny okay he plays thomas craven and his daughter is killed his daughter is killed one night and it, they, it might be a random shooting but as he you know he's a cop so as he starts digging in he realizes his daughter might have been involved in some kind of she might have been trying to expose a conspiracy and when he starts digging there are people who try to tell the cop hey buddy you're just stay away there are powerful people and they can kill you, you know, you, you know, and, and it's basically just this very lean and mean thriller that it's brutal. The violence is brutal. There are a couple of scenes that take your breath away in a bad way. When, when you see something, <laughs> things, bad things happen to people. Ray Winstone, always a, a very good character actor. He plays a hitman who is tasked with killing the cop, but the way they they actually write the, the hitman's character, it's very. You're talking about the best friend in Walking the Edge. This this Ray Winston character is actually he should have a movie of his own. So because he's a very interesting um, co-star in this movie as well. So Edge of Darkness. I don't know. I'm sure you've seen it, Jason. But it's just it's a perfect. I was just before we started this podcast, I was actually watching the end of Edge of Darkness on YouTube. It's also it stars Frank Grillo as well in, in a supporting role. Very very good movie, especially if you love action and if you can. Forgive Mel Gibson as a person and just or separate him as a person and just watch him as a movie star. He does a great job with Edge of Darkness. And it's also directed by Martin Campbell. And he's, you know, and I'm sure you've we've probably had on one of your episodes, most underrated directors. To me, he's an underrated director. You know, he he's uh, he, he's done a lot of great, great films, Edge of Darkness being one of them. I have not seen Edge of Darkness since it came out. I saw it in the theater in 2010. Oh, yeah. And I was going to say Martin Campbell, yeah, he's got such an such an uh, interesting career. Like he's taken a lot of chances. He's done two of my favorite James Bond movies oh, and yeah. then he 
he took on the Green Lantern, which was probably a big mistake. But uh, I also love the the Foreigner with Jackie Chan. Oh, he's so Jackie Chan so great in the Foreigner, and like you said, at least he took on Green Lantern, right? I mean, it's probably he was lost within the studio mix at that time. Oh yeah, and maybe that was a payday for a nice house. <laughs> okay, but before that, like you said, <laughs> he, so. he he did Casino Casino Royale, and and in you know in '98 he did The Mask of Zorro, right? And Golden Eye and I, there's another movie he did called No Escape with Ray Liotta. Very, some very, very good stuff that he's done. So love him as a filmmaker. Yeah. And I, I, man, I forgot he did No Escape. That is uh, one of my favorite guilty pleasure movies right to- there. Yeah, that's a, that's a total, guilty, <laughs> total guilty pleasure. But you did you so you actually liked Edge of Darkness as well on, on your end? You find it to be OK? I remember liking it. Yeah. I don't remember a thing about it, but I remember liking it for sure. Oh, well, I got to revisit it now. Yeah, it, it's great for the revisit because there's an inevitable showdown and one of the antagonists gets, well, expires in a very memorable fashion, let's just say, regarding Edge of Darkness. Speaking of getting ended in memorable fashion, on to my number three, big budget Marvel and DC movies were not James Gunn's first look at the superhero genre. He actually wrote a superhero movie called The Specials, but he his his second movie was Super from 2010. I knew I was losing her. Excuse me, have you seen my wife? I don't think she wants to see you anymore. Sarah! Don't touch my car again. I'm going, that's not the kind of touching I'm in. Jock, he stole my wife. Can you arrest him? Sometimes it's better just to accept these things. <laughs> Batman, battering, pipe bombs, utility belt. Utility uh, belt. Green Arrow has a bow and arrow. Okay. Why do you need all those? I'm making up my own superhero. He needs a weapon. That'll do. Cool. All it takes to be a superhero is the choice to fight evil. Shut up, crime. So this is a, a movie starring Rain Wilson, who most people will know as Dwight from The Office. And he plays this character named Frank. He's a fry cook. And his wife has been kind of enveloped by this local drug dealer, played amazingly by Kevin Bacon. And Frank decides that he is going to become a superhero, calling himself the Crimson Bolt. And uh, he puts together a costume. He gets a weapon. He gets a sidekick, this comic book store clerk named Libby who's played by Elliot Page, and they go to fight crime. And of course, superheroing, that's probably not a word, but I'm just going to, we're going to make <laughs> it up here on this podcast, superheroing yeah. or crime fighting, as some, you know, the layman's would say. It's not really the glorified activity that comic books make it out to be, and there are some very real consequences for everybody involved. Have you seen Super from 2010? Yes, I I even covered the junket. I covered the press junket back in 2010. Really love that film, and it's it's yeah. really I really loved it, how brutal it was. It's really more of a sort of an, almost a very just a gritty drama about what happens when you play the good Samaritan, and when sometimes the, being the good Samaritan becomes an obsession, and the people or the people who are affected by your actions. It's just really well written, well done film. Yeah, I love it. And I'm glad that you love it. 49% of critics love it, but 51% don't. And I'm very confused about it. It's this drama, but it's mixed with a dark comedy. So it's this interesting mix. It's, it is a really dark movie tonally, but watching it, I can totally see where the Suicide Squad came from. Like that tone was born right here with, well, with Slither and with uh, Super. 
it has one of the more shocking death scenes by a character that I've seen. Oh, I'm not yeah. going to say who right. it is, but mm-hmm. wow, it like it blew me away just like that person was uh, <laughs> was blown it, it, away. Right. No, no, that, that was a very surprising moment. And I think it really added to the whole texture of the film where it, basically the story saying, you know what? We're not going to give you an easy out as a viewer. You're not getting that easy out. And that's what I loved about it. I think that the reason it's underrated or the reason that it kind of slid under a lot of radars is because, number one, it came out at a time when superhero films were getting that that boom. Iron Man had come out and the Marvel machine was going and DC was trying to catch up. Then you also have Kick-Ass come out around the same time, which was a little bit more accessible to big movie going crowds. So I think that it got lost in that Kick-Ass and Marvel DC shuffle. But wow, I love Super. I go back to this one pretty often. Okay, cool. Super. Very good. That's a very, very good choice. I, that's what, you know, actually at the press junket, I was thinking to myself, this is such a good movie. And I hope one day James Gunn gets to make more movies like this because this is it's not going to kill at the box office, but it shows what a talent he, he truly is. And obviously he proved everyone right about that. So at least people who are in his corner. We can attribute his uh, his Marvel and DC success to you and your wishes. Oh, right. Exactly. I wish. I wish <laughs> I got some kind of residual. So my number three, it's a De Palma film. Okay. This movie is never mentioned as far as one of his best films because it's not his, one of his best films by, by a long shot. That said, it is my biasly. It's my, I would say it's my, my favorite De Palma film because it goes back to what we were saying at the beginning, how much I love visually driven cinema. Yes, the 1992 film, Raising Cain. You know, I hate to bring this up, but you are married to the perfect man. I don't know. Car popped up out of Half Moon Marsh. Had a woman's body in it. And he's becoming awfully compulsive with Amy. He doesn't just take care of her. He studies her. What do we got now? Two moms disappear from the same playground. You could get us all put away for good. I have this horrible feeling that it has something to do with his father. I did nothing. I don't even exist. This thing you're doing means everything to the old man. I won't hurt her. She'll hurt you. We gotta find these women now. I don't want to be walking behind any lousy coffins. Starring John Lithgow as a child. I don't know. He's weird. He's a child psychologist who becomes. Yeah, he plays the guy, this guy named Doctor Carter Nix. And where do I start? Basically, he's a doctor. And when you think doctor, you think the doctor should be sane. No, he is pretty much clinically insane and he's obsessed with children specifically his own daughter but not in a sexual way but in a way where he wants to study her mind and actually be, he he hovers over her as a, a really nurturing manipulating father but the thing is his he actually his personality his mental frame of mind takes a turn for the worse after he suspects that his wife played by Lolita Davidovich is cheating on him with some hunky guy played by Stephen Bauer. Stephen Bauer previously worked with with De Palma in Scarface, right? So that's the ultimate. Um, so it's it's a it's maybe an adultery revenge story. It's a thriller, and also Carter Nix played by John Lithgow. It's not he's not just playing one doctor. He's playing several people without giving too much away in Raising Cain. So it's a very how do I say it? it it's a very cheesy movie if you just try to critique it and nitpick it as a, a quote-unquote critic. But if you really love De Palma films where it's just a lot of 
a lot of a visually driven narrative, but amiss a very cheesy kind of plot. And also what's really cool is it's written by De Palma. So when anything that's written by De Palma, you know this is what he's really obsessing over. So this is, mm-hmm. um, this yeah, it's written. Whenever you see a movie that says written and directed Brian De Palma, you're going to get the full Brian De Palma experience. So is it better than casualties of war no is it is it a better film than the untouchables not by a long shot right the the untouchables is a perfect film with a script by david mamet no this is a script written by de palma so de palma a is no david mamet okay he would never be (laughs) or he's not even a a robert town you know robert town being the screenwriter behind mission impossible these are all better films but since de palma is my favorite director i want to go for his most some of his most personal work which actually doesn't seem personal, but to him it's very personal. And that choice is Raising Kane. Yeah, it's it's a very out there movie. And the ending sequence is some of the best visually driven De Palma stuff I've seen. Love every single moment of this. I don't even, it's one of these things, it's my favorite De Palma film, but I don't know if I can heartily recommend it for everyone. Now the Rotten Tomato scores, 59% by critics and the audience. They, they obviously did not want to raise Kane, it's 41%, mm. 41% on that. Have you seen the director's cut of this? Yeah, you know what? I did see the director's cut. I'm trying to remember if there was a big difference from the director's to the theatrical. I haven't seen the director's cut yet. And man, I haven't seen Raising Kane since probably the late 90s. Wow. But the director's cut, I remember hearing a big deal about it because it was cut by a fan a longtime De Palma fan. It, it's he's a director now, but he's always been a De Palma fan, and he got a hold of the the materials and re-edited it. And De Palma loved it, and that's how it was added to the Blu-ray release. And I've uh, I've been wondering how it is. I haven't seen it yet. Oh well, maybe I'm trying to think. I think I have seen it. If it's added to the Blu-ray release, you know what? I don't I don't have the Blu-ray, so I probably have to order the Blu-ray right now after we tape this podcast and check it out. So probably. The answer might be no. I haven't seen the the, the director's cut. My goodness. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, that'll be interesting to to see what you think about the director's cut. What did you think of the film the first time when you saw it in the late 90s? I, I couldn't even tell you. I don't even remember anything about it. So this is another one that I need to revisit. Yeah, well, now it's interesting because you're going to revisit it 22 years later when you have a lot more cinema knowledge and your taste has probably expanded. So I think you're going to give it a, a really interesting take. It'll be an interesting take to see now at your age and experience. Definitely. I don't even think I knew who Brian De Palma was back then, but uh, <laughs> I have all that context now that I wouldn't have had then. So yeah. you also brought up David Mamet and that made me kick myself because there are a couple David Mamet films that I could have put on my list as well. All right. Of course. <laughs> but didn't. Spartan. Yeah, definitely. Spartan. That's the one that came to my head. Yeah. Spartan. Oh, definitely. Val Kilmer is so good. Where's the girl? Yeah. I was the, the recent documentary Val, the fact that they basically blow by Spartan in a split second just really <laughs> I know I know that's one of his one of his best my number two all right we're getting into uh, uh, the horror genre kind of here with a 2011 movie that totally blew me away totally caught me by surprise and that's Red State what is this man it's like Craigslist for people who want to get fucked I thought Craigslist was Craigslist for people who want to get fucked. We're getting laid, boys. She wants all three of us at the same time. It's gonna be like fucking my mom. This is what happens to parents block porn sites, man. They make socially backwards kids. 
Bet you boys want to get up to the devil's business, don't you? Get drinking, because I ain't drinking alone. And I don't let no man in me unless he's got at least two beers in. Yes, ma'am. Guys, is, is, that, uh, is that you, Travis? We are coming, family. Good evening. So up through Ooh. 2011, Kevin Smith did not play in genres other than, as he himself deems it, the dick and fart joke comedy. And then all of a sudden, I see this poster for Red State, which says on it, it says, an unlikely movie from that Kevin Smith. Hmm. Have you seen Red State before? No, I've, I've, I've had a couple of people tell me that they actually like that movie. And if they say that, they'll say that's the only Kevin Smith film that I like. <laughs> that's weird. Now, I, I do like a couple early Kevin Smith films, but he hasn't really made a whole lot since Chasing Amy that I've that I've liked. And and this is by no means a perfect movie, but I really respect the direction that he went with this one. He went in a totally different way than anything he had done before this. It starts kind of the same way. It starts as this formulaic teen comedy and these three teenage boys, they're online and this woman contacts them and lures them with the promise of sex. So it's like a catfish. It starts out as a catfish. And then the film just plunges into complete madness as they find themselves in the grasp of this torturous Christian church. And about halfway through the movie, it kind of morphs into a siege film. And ultimately, it ends as this religious satire. And if all of this uh, that I'm explaining to you, Greg, sounds weird <laughs> as hell, it totally is. There's really three reasons why I really love Red State. One is the chance that Kevin Smith took on this. I think that a lot of this was financed by himself because he was not on a great run leading up to this. Like he had just done Cop Out, which was a complete disaster. And I think he just wanted to do something new. So that was one reason. Michael Parks is probably the biggest reason. He plays this character named Alvin Cooper, who's running the church. And he is just so good in that role. He's so terrifying. And John Goodman's also here as this uh, ATF agent, and he's really great. He's he's leading this squad trying to take down this church that they've deemed a terrorist group. The movie's uneven, and for a lot of people, it doesn't end in a very satisfying way. But I mm. thought it was a great departure for Kevin Smith. And like I said, I'm not a Kevin Smith apologist, but I love Red State from 2011. Wow. Okay, yeah, that's not not a pretty good pick. Maybe that's a movie that because I like Angarano and yeah, it might be something I should check out. And I, you know what? To be honest, I like Kevin Smith as well. So, might be a, a movie that I, yeah. he's got an interesting voice. This one, uh, critics, it's sixty percent on Rotten Tomatoes. So, critics liked it more than disliked it, but there's still a lot of people that just shit on this movie, and I can't understand why. I think it's pretty good. Oh, that is crazy. That is crazy. Okay, well. Speaking of crap on a movie, my my number two is probably the worst out of the worst. And I can understand Uh-oh. the ratings. Tomato meter, 33%. Audience score, it is 23%. It, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna play a game, Jason, with you, and I apologize for playing games. It's not my podcast, it's your podcast, but this movie is directed by Ridley Scott, and it has an audience score of 23%. Do you have any idea what this movie is? Ooh, okay. Ridley Scott, movies that people probably didn't like. Robin Hood's the first one that comes to mind. Okay. You have you have two more choices. Ooh, The Counselor. Yes. Which, if you say it's 
It's the counselor? Yes. Yes. It's the counselor. Counselor. My back's against the wall, man. Money problems are serious problems. I will set it up. 625 kilos. We're probably looking at 20 million. I know why I'm in it. Do you? It's a nice ring. Want to know how much it's worth? I always thought a law degree was a license to steal, but you hadn't really capitalized on it. I'm really worried, baby. It's going to be all right. If you pursue this road that you've embarked upon, you will eventually come to moral decisions that will take you completely by surprise. You should be careful what you wish for. You might not get it. Oh, okay. We definitely disagree on this one. I would love to hear your take because I hated the council. Right. I, I, I totally agree with you. Okay, so <laughs> I, look, I agree with you the first time I saw it. I saw this actually at on the Fox lot. Okay. Just me. I was so excited because look, after De Palma, it would have to be Ridley Scott. It is a close second for me as uh, favorite filmmakers. Mm-hmm. And what I saw, what I witnessed was cl- a close to a, yeah, basically one hour and 57 minute monologue with different people and it was just all talking and rarely action. And the idea of this, you know, Michael Fassbender playing a Texas lawyer, he has a really wonderful girlfriend. His fiance is played by Penelope Cruz. So it's a star driven material. There's Cameron Diaz. She plays this really, Oh, I guess a, a sexually charged criminal. And she has a very interesting, That's one way to put it. Yeah. She has a very interesting <laughs> relationship with a car and, yeah, and there's also Javier Bardem playing, sporting these just really annoying, if I recall, like glasses, sunglasses, and and then mm-hmm. you have Brad Pitt trying to wheel and deal his way to a big score. It all centers on this drug drug operation gone wrong, and what happens? What happens? What, what kind? Where where do the dominoes fall in the counselor? It sounds interesting, and the fact that it's actually written by Cormac McCarthy from No Country for Old Men, you're thinking. Yeah, this has a make and directed by Ridley Scott. You're thinking this has the makings of a classic. No, no. The movie is a total for me the upon the first viewing was a total miss because it's essentially people talking for close to two hours and the, the <laughs> ending is so frustrating, right? But then after I watched it again, I saw I I have the Blu-ray. Ridley Scott won me over. There's the audio commentary is amazing. He breaks down he, the scenes and his intent and the fact that it was a 20, I think a $20 million indie film. And the fact that he was able to make a visually interesting movie with so little money and so little time won me over. Then I watched it after the commentary. And then it got into the groove of just like, yeah, this is a moral morality tale, which is more about like the ending of Cormac McCarthy's or well, the Coen brothers' is, no Country for Old Men. Essentially, what the counselor is, it's the ending of No Country for Old Men with Tommy Lee Jones talking about his dream for about two hours. So, if I framed <laughs> it that way for the counselor, the counselor actually at that year became one of my favorites of that year. Wow. And when I tell people how much I love, I used to go watch movies with a movie group over here in Los Angeles with, you know, there were filmmakers and there were comic book artists. Whenever I'd, I'd mention, that the council was one of my favorites that year. Everyone looked at me like I shouldn't ever attend <laughs> one of their events ever again. Only one person defended me and said, "Oh yeah, man, that that's one of my favorites too." So probably both of us were were, were the outcasts. <laughs> but yeah, I yes, I understand that you hated it. I understand that most people hate it. You understand the low ratings. But my only suggestion is, again, we were during the first recording, we were talking about the Black Dahlia and, and De Palma. 
regarding sometimes movies won't work on one level. The counselor does not work as a pace wise. It doesn't work as a um, gritty thriller, but it works as a morality tale. And if you like to see a bunch of actors chew scenery for a couple minutes at a time, <laughs> counselor works. The counselor works. So, and Cameron Diaz, she hasn't had a role like this ever, and she was absolutely menacing in the film. Wow, that's an interesting pick. You have me at, <laughs> you have me interested in the commentary because I love listening to directors' commentaries. This is one that I've never thought to listen to because on my first watch, I really, really disliked it. The only things I remember, well, there's there are actually quite a few things I remember from it, like the uh, the motorcycle scene, right? And then a, a <laughs> very interesting bolo tie. Oh yeah, comes very into play. Yes, yes, very interesting. <laughs> but uh, yeah, to listen to the commentary for it, I I think that's a pretty interesting idea. And yeah, maybe it is time that I that I give that one another shot. Well, uh, Jason, I'm gonna go on a, a tangent right now. Do you have a big physical media collection in your in your residence? I certainly do. Yes, I am a collector. Um, and do you catalog it, or do you have a rough count of how many you have? You think? I do, and uh, let's pull this up here, and I'll tell you, I have. Oh, you and you and your movie spreadsheets. You and your movie spreadsheets, Jason. Oh, come on, are you doing? Wow. We're, yeah, we're pulling up. I have nine hundred and seventy-seven Blu-rays. Okay, and when you say nine hundred seventy-seven, are these nine hundred seventy-seven that you all want to keep? Meaning, is it a specified collection, or is a bunch of them maybe arbitrary? Just it, they're they're taking up space because you kind of like them, or you, you know, you're. I think that about seventy five percent are movies that I feel need to be in my library, and twenty five percent are those movies where it was like that looks like a good deal. I'll give it a shot, or uh, like I have subscription to to certain Blu ray services, and they'll send me something that it's like oh, I'll watch it and sell it, and it just hasn't sold yet. Well, here's my ultimate nightmare. So we live in a streaming age now, and people look at. People like me and you who collect physical media as sort of a niche group that maybe they could put us all into a cage and watch us as we <laughs> as 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 we yeah uh, we we or it could be a it would be called like the the Blu-ray Zoo where they put us behind a cage and they'll watch us eat bananas and and peanuts because we should be observed or or you know or sedated because I think the phys- physical media is dying number one but you know you have all these other boutique. We need to support these boutique companies who come out with these Blu-rays and DVDs, not just because of the prints, but I have, I don't know if you have this nightmare that with all the streaming service out, streaming services out there, there, and the money we pay every month or stuff we get for free on something, a great service like Tubi, we have so many people have so many options to watch movies. What gets lost, in my opinion, is the people who own these streaming services, they can literally take a special feature from a disc and not include it in the said service if they have the rights to yep. the movie. So what happens? People younger than you and me, they're watching a movie on their iPad, which is fine, or their phone. I don't, I, look, I don't care about that stuff. I'm thinking about the archiving of information. What if it gets lost and the only people who hold that are people like you who are in the zoo eating bananas and peanuts? <laughs> And and you know what? The, the tragedy is not that you and I are in a zoo eating peanuts and bananas and, and people are watching us like we're, we're crazy animals with our Blu-ray collection. The, the tragedy is that people won't be looking for those Blu-rays and for that information. Right. Do you ever have that kind of similar just 
conniption fit about it that all of these cool extras will be lost if we submit ourselves to the streaming world 100%. Absolutely, I do. And there are a couple of reasons why I want to have a physical collection. By the way, I didn't know you were a physical media collector. How many do you do you catalog yours or have a account on yours? I have a running count, probably maybe 650, 700 around that that. But it's not you know, I've pared it down, but it's one of those things where it's like I pare it down, but I think as the days go by, I might want to pare it back up because of the aforementioned. Just right. I, I'm just yeah. I'm I'm getting a little bit yeah. It's it, yeah, I, can, I feel like John Void at the end of Deliverance. I wake up in a sweat thinking about <laughs> Blu-ray features that or DVD features that are are lost in the ether. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, there's there's a couple of reasons why physical media appeals to me. Number one, streaming is solely based on contracts. And your favorite film might not be on a streaming service tomorrow. And it might be today, but you don't want to watch it today. You tune in tomorrow and it's gone. So that's one thing. They can always edit content on those. As we've seen from Disney Plus, they've put edited movies on their service, which is kind of a shame to me. Yeah. And then, like you said, those... uh, Well, another, another reason is I have a young kid and I'm trying to build a library that just like people hand things down. I'd like to curate a library to hand down to him, but these director's commentaries, commentaries, the featurettes, I can, you know, I'll watch them once and then I won't really care about them again for the most part. But director's commentaries, I really, really love because I want to be a screenwriter. That's my dream job in Hollywood. I want to make movies. Yeah. I've, I've had a couple of screenplays on the blacklist and that's my dream to sell one of those blacklist screenplays. And like, I listen to these for the craft and to learn more about them and to hear you say that like just hearing you say that the commentary kind of turned you around on your thoughts on the counselor is proof of how powerful those are. 100%. It's so easy for these streaming companies to put a commentary track on the, on their streaming services. Like if you look at Disney Plus, they have like 16 different languages you can watch it in. Why not just drop a commentary track in there? It's a small audio file. It's an it's an easy answer, Jason, and it's because they don't care. And why, why would they, yeah. right? Why would they, when they go, oh, let's, you know, Joe and Sally, they're, they're, they're not going to care about the, the, the special features anyway. So they, what they, what they don't know won't hurt them. And that's just a very toxic thing to actually think about because, oh, they should be those people who are subscribed to the service. They should just be thankful that we have the movie up there for them to watch. And I think that's That's what's going to happen. And it's going to be up to these like criterions to actually man the ship. And, and put those special features on. That said, those kind of streaming services are few and far between. And yeah, I mean, the idea that Paul Thomas Anderson learned pretty much, he said, I think he said a lot of things he learned from directing or learning how to direct was listening to John Sturgis's audio commentary in bad, on Bad Day at Black Rock. Wow. Okay. So mm-hmm. that'd be cool if Bad Day at Black Rock is playing on TCM or it gets an Amazon Prime Video release. Thank you, Amazon Prime Video. But guess what? If it's on Amazon Prime Video, love you. A, it might be a bad transfer, and B, you're, you're sure as heck not going to get the special features with the John Sturgis commentary, right? So where does that the little fourteen, the twelve year old kid who watches Bad Day at Black Rock on on his iPad? Yeah, he gets it for free, but he doesn't get to listen to the Sturgis commentary because it's it's you know only Jason and Greg have the have the audio commentary <laughs> on Warner Archive, you know. So those those kind of things drive me insane. 
you know, just to think about yep. the younger generation. And we're stuck in the blue zoo, you know? We can't share this stuff when we're we're locked in the cage. We're locked in the cage. But you know what, what I think, and I, I apologize for this town tangent, but the older I get, the more, and maybe this is unplaced faith, but the more faith I have actually in the younger generation, because when you and I were younger, when things weren't given to us on a silver platter, we were such fans of maybe cinema that we would hunt them down. And so the great yeah. thing with technology and with people, they're smarter than us. They're going to find a way if they're if it's really important. I think the key is just to hammer it down to the younger generation how important it is that these masters and their words get survive in in whatever form, even if it's put up on on YouTube or or whatever, or cut up as an audio file on and post it on IG or whatever. It has to this kind of stuff has to live on for for people younger than us, and hopefully more passionate passionate than us to make awesome films so then you and i can reap the benefits and watch these movies a hundred percent agree and i love the tangent because i will talk about physical media all day long <laughs> okay you said when it comes to that kind of stuff studios don't care and my last pick my number one here is one that audiences didn't care about oh and uh it baffles me critics actually got this movie for the most part it sits at 69 percent on rotten tomatoes but the audience score 35 percent and I was very confused. This is a movie from 2014. It is one of the funniest comedies of the 21st century, in my opinion. David Wayne's They Came Together. If you love love stories. You like fiction books? I never met anyone else who likes fiction. That is too funny. And if you love falling in love. <laughs> then you will love this love story. Hey. You look different. Really? You think so? You've got Groucho glasses on. You noticed. Well, great story. Yeah, we should get together again very soon. Yes. We're not done. Yeah, sit down. Well, actually, you know it's getting so late. Sit your ass down, Karen. That's one of those movies where I saw the trailer and I said to myself, this movie looks so completely bonkers out there that <laughs> I have to eventually see it because it's a parody upon a parody, very meta. This is a, it's a romantic comedy, but it's a complete satire of the romantic comedy genre. It was just designed to lampoon the stupidity of those plots. And I think that general audiences went into this film thinking that it was a romantic comedy starring Amy Poehler and the forever young Paul Rudd. Right. And they were just disappointed because it was so off the wall and bonkers. If you look at the, like the um, synopsis, on IMDb for most movies, it will be, it's not going to give anything away, right? That's the goal of a synopsis is not to give anything away. I'm going to read for you word for word the synopsis because I think it will give you the tone of what this movie is going for. Yeah. When Joel and Molly meet, it's hate at first sight. His big corporate candy company threatens to shut down her quirky indie shop. Plus, Joel is hung up on his sexy ex. But amazingly, they fall in love until they break up about two-thirds of the way through, and Molly starts dating her accountant. But right at the end, you'll just have to see. Hint, Joel makes a big speech, and they get back together. <laughs> That's literally the synopsis, and it saddens me that people didn't get this movie. And it's it also kind of saddens me that they just don't seem to get David Wayne's comedy, because Wet Hot American Summer could have easily made this list for me. This has a ton of great physical comedy, and Paul Rudd doing physical physical comedy is just amazing. It's also got some airplane-level dialogue. Oh, really? Okay. 
Yeah. Oh, it's so good. There's there's a scene in which Joel and Molly had a fight. They're they're kind of making up, and Joel says, "I'm sorry." I'm sorry. You're sorry. I thought you were Joel. Actually, Joel is my middle name. Sorry is your first name. Billy is my first name. Your name is Billy Joel. Hmm. I never really thought about that before, but yeah, I guess it is. I should probably get going. <laughs> it's like <laughs> such a funny exchange that's so irreverent, but. Oh my god, I love it. The cast on this movie is insane. You have uh, Bill Hader, Ellie Kemper, Ken Marino, Jason Manzukis, Ed Helms, Randall Park, John Stamos, Adam Scott, and somebody you brought up uh, a little bit earlier, Michael Shannon, who's nice. in it for like five seconds of screen time. This is one of the funniest movies of the decade. I will defend it until the end. It is They Came Together from 2014. You got to go into it with the right mind. This is not... Music and lyrics. This is not your uh, Harry Met Sally. This is an airplane style take on romantic comedies. Well, you know, to your point, do you think that movie, as as the years go on, it's going to be it's going to be placed in good stead? You know, I bet you. I think for one, like one brief week, I was on Clubhouse and David Wayne was hosting a room and stuff. I don't know if he's still on Clubhouse a lot, but I'm sure whenever he's on Clubhouse, whenever the people turn on their audio, whatever they do there. I bet you there's a lot of people who, who mention this movie and tell them how much they think it's underrated. Oh, I hope so. I hope so. And it's rated R, which I think is uh, it. it is able to stretch its wings in a way that most romantic comedies, which are rated PG-13, can't do. Now, my my final pick, okay, again, it is Ridley Scott. Why did I say Brian De Palma is my favorite filmmaker when I have two Ridley Scott <laughs> films here? Well, not many De Palma movies can be underrated because they're mostly highly rated. Oh, very, very good point. Very good point. Now, this movie, and we're going to play the, this final game, is can you guess the Ridley Scott movie that has a tomato meter of 39%? But here's the thing. The audience score is 72%. And I'm sure you probably know the difference. If not, then this is going to be a very good discovery for you, actually. Let's see. Let's see. Um, I'm trying to think of movies that were not well received by him. I don't know what Black Rain is rated. Ooh, yeah, is that's that, another good is that movie the choice from, from back in the day. That's a nice guess. And uh, I do love Andy Garcia. So that's one of those movies where I can't watch again. Okay. <laughs> it's tough. Okay. The other guess, I'll, I'll, I'll guess uh, Kingdom of Heaven. Yes. Good choice. Okay. Now, why did you, why did you guess Kingdom of Heaven? I'm guessing that critics rated the in-theater experience, and I'm guessing that audience members have since seen the director's cut, which is way longer and, fle- and more fleshed out. Right. Now, now here's the thing. We don't really have to get into the plot. It's, it's essentially set during the Crusades, and, and Orlando friggin' Bloom, he plays as blacksmith. I think his name is ba- Balin or Balian or something like that, and he goes on a crusade with his... With, with with Liam Neeson's character, I think it's his father, and the the movie within the theatrical cut, it charts his rise from a blacksmith to basically a warrior who finds his way in a war against the Muslims. Okay, that's the premise for this two hour twenty five minute film, Kingdom of Heaven, two thousand released in two thousand five, thirty nine percent by critics. I saw this movie again on the Fox lot, again being a, a Ridley Scott fan and realizing that. At the time, this was easily the, the worst Ridley Scott film I'd ever seen. Orlando Bloom's performance was downright cartoonish. I had no, you know, and this obviously this was during the reign of the whole sword and sandal epic situation. And, you know, we had Ridley Scott's Gladiator and I was comparing it to Gladiator. The movie when it came out bombed. And yeah, to your point, 
I, eventually, I got the DVD because of the, the commentary. And then I said, you know what? This what this is longer version? I'll check out the Ridley Scott version. And I was blown away because Kingdom of Heaven turned out to be my favorite Ridley Scott film of all time. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I was... So this is an experience where we were talking about movies that we see at a certain time, and then as we get older, it upscales. But then this is a, a completely different movie. I don't think I've ever – have you ever witnessed a movie that has such a wide swath of – from being a very subpar movie to being just an excellent masterpiece kind of thing? I, I can't even think of one. And the, but the choice, I think a lot of cinephiles would say, is Kingdom of Heaven. So yes, I think most people – who aren't diehard cinephiles are thinking of Kingdom of Heaven as a, a movie that really sucks and should be ignored, just like Robin Hood or Exodus, God and Kings. Okay, but this movie is just pure. The at least the director's cut is a pure classic. And yes, it is better than the Counselor. So yeah, <laughs> it is better than the Counselor. So yeah, that's and this is how surprising that pick is. Years later. I interviewed Orlando, Orlando Bloom, and I think he did a movie with Mark Ruffalo. Just out of the blue, it was a, a round table. And I said, oh, by the way, Orlando, I, I just I saw, I, I think the director's cut of Kingdom of Heaven is amazing. I think it's underrated, and you're awesome in it. And when I said that to him, he looked at me like he, he just saw uh, a spaceship because rarely <laughs> had people probably said that to him. They're probably saying Lord of the Rings and a couple other things, right? But he was shocked that I actually gave him that compliment. So even Orlando Bloom back in the day was surprised at how many people really loved Kingdom of Heaven, director's cut. Great pick. I you know, th I didn't even think about this because for me, the only version I've ever seen was the director's cut. I didn't see this in theaters. Oh my and so when it hit DVD, like I didn't pay it any attention. And then that big four disc edition came out and that's when I finally watched it. And like you, I was blown away, but I never had that first disappointment. So this didn't even come into my come into my head. Great pick. Oh, so you wait, wait. You actually watched a theatrical after the director. So you were you found out the like like you know that it wasn't as well developed as the. That's why you're saying it wasn't as well developed as the director's cut, right? So you had that frame of reference by actually watching the original movie post uh, director's cut. I've only seen the director's cut. Yeah, I've read about oh. the the cuts made, and it's like, wow, you because I mean, you you gotta think you cut out an hour plus of a movie, you're gonna lose a lot in translation, and that seems like that's what happened. You lose Orlando Bloom's gradual growth as a warrior or as a human being. So when when that jump happens, you're thinking, when did he become this person? And it's la mm. it becomes a laughable moment. <laughs> you go, oh. Wait, he suddenly became Russell Crowe. He suddenly became the the, the, the smartest and, and fiercest warrior in in, in the castle and, and the whole grounds. How did that happen? So he was, he, yeah, he was just working with metal about twenty minutes ago. What's going on here? So it, it just didn't it just didn't work. It, that movie is horrible, and it's so funny when when you talk to fellow Ridley Scott fans. We, I, I was on a Zoom with all the press and I, just a stranger. I just we were just talking movies and. You mentioned, uh, you just meant, you know, the name Ridley Scott came up. And then the first thing that he says, oh man, Ridley Scott's director's cut of Kingdom of Heaven. I think that's a, that's a common, <laughs> common language that I think a lot of cinephiles have, the Kingdom of Heaven director's cut. So yes, underrated movie because of the director's cut. Did you have any honorable mentions that almost made your list, but just didn't make the top five cut? Right. right. You know what? It's one of these things where 
the these were some of my original picks. Like I picked like the man who wasn't there because that's a Coen Brothers movie that mm. people really roundly praise. Okay, I'm not e- I'm not even gonna look it up on Rotten Tomatoes. It has probably high scores. The only reason why I would have initially picked it is because it's a black and white film noir. Most of the movie's voiceover with Billy Bob Thornton, and he was talking during the interviews during the press junket, and he was saying that how whenever he did the the narration, he would just smoke a lot into the mic to get that gravelly you know voice like that, the Robert Mitchum voice, and that was pretty cool to listen to. But the movie itself is probably one of the most evocative Coen Brothers films I've seen. And I just thought, think it's a brilliant film. I'm sure a lot of Coen Brothers fans feel the same way in cinephiles. But my only the only way, reason why it probably it deserves honorable mention is because no one mentions the man who wasn't there as far as greatest Coen Brothers movies. They always say, Raising Arizona. They'll say, No Country for Old Men. And or sometimes they'll someone who wants to be smart and and really cool they'll they'll say oh I love Barton Fink or Miller's Crossing all, all, you know good picks as well but the man who wasn't there rarely gets mentioned it, you know in the in that collection how about you is there some honorable mentions that, that, that you got yeah I got a little list here that I'll just quickly bounce through uh, in the comfort of strangers was the Paul Schrader movie that I nearly put on my list which is just a fascinating. Oh, really? Criterion has a great Blu-ray of that. It's about this couple in uh, Venice and Christopher Walken starts stalking them in uh, like kind of a sexual way, which is really, um, yeah, if you're a fan of Paul Schrader stuff, you're going to like that. Uh, But critics didn't like it. It was like 50%. Um, Last Boy Scout, Shane Black's Last Boy Scout from 1991, I really love. Oh, great film. That's That's a really fun film. That's one of those things where it's just a guilty pleasure. And the great thing about Tony Scott films is you can watch those movies just like the Palma. Like if you don't even like the movie or the context of the movie, you can watch it because it's a Tony Scott movie because of the pacing and the cuts, the the music and, and the way the movie looks. So love his stuff. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's great. And speaking of guilty pleasures, probably my guiltiest of the pleasures, Kindergarten Cop. Oh, really? I've yeah, never, I love Kindergarten Cop. I've never seen that. Yeah. If you watch it now for the very first time, I don't know that you're going to get as much out of it as me who grew up with it and like yeah. endlessly quoted it as a kid. So that's more of a <laughs> I'm attached to it versus critics didn't get it, which is why it didn't make my list. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Good list. Awesome. Greg, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, one last plug for the website. Head to deepestdream.com. You're going to find all of Greg's stuff there. You're going to be able to not only read his material and see what's going on in Hollywood, but you're also going to be able to get links to cinematics and find your film. Find your film we didn't yet really touch on, but you and uh, your co-hosts Bruce Perky and Eric Holmes talk movies every single week. So go check that out. And uh, cinematics, there's a lot to be had there. A lot of material from both Greg and Anderson. Yeah, I love Anderson. He's he's a very good friend of mine, as you you know, and... uh... Thank you for having me, Jason. It was really fun just to talk about movies, you know? Yeah, and we got to talk about movies twice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if you ever meet John Woo, just make sure that you say nice things about me because I, <laughs> I feel bad or I, I owe him a couple of apologies. Listeners, which underrated films did we miss? Let me know on social media. You can find me at Force5Pod on Twitter and Force5Podcast on Instagram. Also, if you haven't done so already, take a minute, rate and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Intro and outro bumpers today come courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go watch some movies you think are underrated. Underrated.